If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, August the 31st, and you're listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. My guest today joining me from somewhere here in a smoky San Francisco Bay area is John Yu. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. From 2001 to 2003, John served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department of President George W. Bush. John is the co-host of the Hoover Institution Pacific Century podcast with our colleague, Misha Oslin. John is also an accomplished author in his own right. His book, Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, is published a month ago. And John, you, you got a trip to the Oval Office out of it, didn't you? Oh, geez, Bill, you've been keeping tabs on my movements. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> uh, the president actually uh, asked me to come in the Oval Office. I thought we were going to take a picture of the book, which we did. Uh, but then he had me stick around for an hour and just shoot the breeze. It was a lot of fun. It was really amazing, actually. If I could only uh, get him out there more to sell the book itself, I'd be really happy. So I'm going to ask you the one question everybody else does who knows you and knows Trump. You have one thing in common, and that is McDonald's. Oh, yeah, actually. And you, he did, had a- and you didn't bring it up, did you? No, I, I was ready, though, because I, I, w- I was prepared to debate the virtues of the McRib versus the Quarter Pounder, but he didn't bring it up. Let's talk about the book for a second. So the premise of the book is that uh, Donald Trump, contrary to popular narratives, is a legitimate president who's been exercising traditional constitutional powers of the presidency. How did you come to that conclusion, John? I started out four years ago as a skeptic. Um, I thought that as a populist, like many populists before him, President Trump would want to brush aside constitutional restraints on his power. But over the last four years, I think the record has been that his opponents have been so uh, driven crazy by him, have such a desire to bring him down, that they're the ones who are launching uh, arguments about our traditional constitutional principles and norms. He's not the one who's saying, for example, let's get rid of the Electoral College. He's not the one proposing to add six justices to the Supreme Court to get the outcomes he likes. He's not the one who wants to make permanent independent councils that are criminalize our politics. He's not the one who wants to nationalize the energy and transportation sectors. He go on and on. And his critics went so far, I think, that they left him the field of relying on the traditional understanding of presidential power. You could look at, I go through this in the book, you look at things from uh, building a wall uh, to emergency powers to immigration, and whether you agree or disagree, and I disagree with some of his policies, particularly immigration and trade, he's rooted them in powers given to by Congress or traditional exercises by presidents uh, in the past. Uh, I'm curious, John, as you look at this administration, uh, so, much of it should, so much of it does not pertain to the old boys network, especially on foreign policy, national security matters. Where did he get his legal team? Oh, that's interesting. So he started out with a legal team that was basically the people who got him elected. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's not a great idea. So he, <laughs> he got Jeff Sessions to be attorney general, who had been the first senator to support him. And then his campaign lawyer, uh, Don McGahn, became the White House counsel. And Mm -hmm. I have to say one thing they did, which was, uh, I think, very uh, 
pleasing to the to his base to all conservatives actually was to really rev up the judicial appointments machine to the point where uh, Trump has appointed I think more uh, appeals court judges in one term than any president in the past um, and he has not just put a lot of them in there but nominees of really the highest quality uh, people who uh, are stars and they're going to be the you know the farm team for the future Supreme Court justices uh, under Republican presidents he's really done a remarkable job so I think in the but and this is another thing about the book and its argument about traditional constitutional understandings versus I think a left that's out to get him uh, is that a lot of his areas and a lot of his operations in the area of law were set back right away he's been playing defense because right. of the Mueller investigation which I argue was really an effort uh, in the bro- bigger scheme of things to uh, detach the president's control over law enforcement that it was the effort of a permanent law enforcement bureaucracy to stay independent of the president, who is the only one in the Constitution charged with taking care of the laws or faithfully executed. So he never had much time to have a, a proactive uh, agenda in law and constitutional issues other than picking judges. Interesting. Based on what Trump has gone through, how do you think Donald? How do you think Joe Biden would handle a, a special counsel, a special prosecutor, if he had to, if he faced that choice? It's an interesting question. I think that's one, uh, I think, problem with what Democrats are doing these days is there's some short-term thinking going on. I keep urging them, think about all the things you're doing. What happens if Biden's president? Do you really want the presidency to be handicapped in the way that you are trying uh, trying with the Trump administration? So if, if you're you're President Biden. You might be set by a special counsel right away. Mm-hmm. You might be you might be set by a special counsel for things you did before you were president. You might be beset by a special counsel for Hunter Biden and all his activities. Uh, you could have into, you have impeachment started before you even done very very much. Uh, those are all things that happened with. Uh, President Trump, there's no reason, there's no special clause in the Constitution that only applies to Donald Trump. Right. Everything that happens to him is going to ha- happens to his successors, too. Right, but you see a pattern on these appointments. Somebody's appointed a special prosecutor. The press talks about what a Boy Scout they are. You always hear that phrase. Mm. He's a Boy Scout. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, that prosecutor becomes the equivalent of a vacuum cleaner that's just kind of moving around your house randomly looking for dirt. And this was the case with Mueller. This is the case with uh, Fitzgerald uh, during the Bush 43 administration. And it's the case with Tribe and Bush 41, uh, even Ken Starr, if you will, uh, back in, mm-hmm. uh, in Clinton presidency. So, so is there anything Biden could do to avoid that situation, or is this just what the law presents him with? Oh, I actually think uh, that Biden could, and I think it would be for the good of the country, could just kill off these special counsels, even though his, I, I might observe that his uh, senator, the person who took his seat, the senator from Delaware, Chris Coons, has proposed making them permanent by statute. But I argue in the book that Trump could have fired Mueller at any time, and that would have reasserted the president's control over law enforcement. I actually think it might be good for the country if a Democratic president did it because that would settle the matter. And the media and Congress under a Democrat being so supportive, uh, as we saw uh, that they were for Clinton when he was under the Ken Starr investigation, as you mentioned, maybe what we need is for a Democratic president to be investigated by a special counsel and to have uh, a President Biden fire them in order to remove this, permanently remove this cancer from our constitutional system. It would be interesting to see if the media would immediately go to Nixon's Saturday Night, Saturday Night Massacre if that happened, though. 
I, I, I totally doubt that. <laughs> right? They would instead be investigating, as they did with Ken Starr, whether he was part of some weird religious cult and had to be fired, whether he was taking too, you know, too many financial interests with, <laughs> you know, with various interest groups and so on. I think the media would be really support, suddenly find again uh, its love for a president who you know, manages a unitary executive branch. Right. So, John, we're recording this on a Monday afternoon in California. And on Tuesday, the president is supposed to go to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and uh, survey the damage. Um, You read about what he legally can and cannot do in these situations. As I understand it, he can legally send in federal troops to protect federal property, courthouses, for example. What else can he do, though, as a commander in chief in these situations? So this is a very interesting. And I didn't cover this in the book because the book came out before this happened. But this is actually another example where Trump is really not claiming any unusual presidential powers. This is actually power given to him by Congress in something called the Insurrection Act. And so... Uh, the first thing is that he can always come in at the request. I guess it's not forthcoming of Wisconsin, but he can always come in at the request of the governor uh, to help law enforcement just restore uh, stability. But suppose the governor won't in this situation you mentioned. Then they, the president could still send in troops. He has to find that people are preventing the enforcement of federal law or they're attacking federal facilities. If that's not true then he has to find that basically law and order has broken down in an area and that federal troops are there not to catch robbers, not to arrest murderers, but just to restore basic law and order when state government has failed. And there he doesn't need the permission of the governor. And sometimes when this has happened, it's been against the wishes of the state. So, for example, Dwight Eisenhower, when he sent the 101st Airborne down to the south to escort children to school, kids right. to school uh, to promote, to advance Brown versus Board of Education. The governors actually directly oppose that, or if you think about Lincoln in the Civil War. Uh, so uh, the federal constitution does give the president the authority ultimately to enforce federal law, and he has to do that even if governors ha- uh, want to oppose him. Interesting. Uh, but in the case of uh, Arkansas with the uh, with the school admissions, you know, that's an obvious act, walking kids into school. How would you deploy troops, though, in, in a town like Kenosha or a town like Portland? Would you just have lining the streets? Would they be protecting buildings? How, how would you have them peacefully laid out? So what we've seen, uh, you were you were around, Bill, then we saw, uh, although it was at Governor Wilson's request, but yeah. I listened to Tiaragas. He, sp- he spoke with the governor about what it was like after the Rodney King riots. And so what you would have to do in that kind of situation is I think exactly what happened then. You would have to have actually troops out on the streets patrolling. Again, they're not, they don't have the authority to arrest people for violating state laws, or criminal law. They're only there to protect lives and protect property. And mm-hmm. so you would have them there to restore basic law and order. But anything beyond that is still up to state to state police. Mm-hmm. But that would require thousands of troops, I would think, even in a small town like Kenosha. Exactly. Exactly. All right, John. So we are now seven weeks out from the election. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of scenarios that will make heads explode. Um, <laughs> 
and this ties in what we're talking about, the attack on the Constitution. The first one's going to be our friend, the Electoral College. Very easy to project a scenario where Donald Trump wins the Electoral College, maybe by not as much as he did in 2016, where he had 306. Maybe he scrapes by with even the bare minimum 270, but the rules are the rules, and because he has 270 electoral votes, he is declared president of the United States. But he loses the popular vote and loses it by a wider margin, even in 2016. So that's scenario number one head explodes over that scenario number two a razor thin contest and oh let's say wisconsin where he won by a scant few thousand votes last time john it goes through recounts the secretary of state certifies the vote it's then challenged in a federal appeals court uh sides with the challenger and then it goes to supreme court where a five to four supreme court more republican justices and democrat justices side with the president Kaboom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, that's, that's Florida 2000, isn't it? <laughs> it's Florida 2000. So let's, let's talk a second about Florida yeah. 2000 because you were on the ground, correct? Yeah, I actually, I was an obscure scholar. I've been writing about courts and federalism. And so, and very few people did back then. So when the, that happened, I got invited to testify before the Florida legislature, which was the strangest experience. And so I showed up and you know, no one had ever written about this. This had last happened in 1876, really. Right, and, right. So, and again, it was Florida that caused all the trouble with disputed electoral votes then. But you know, there are a few statutes, a few rules, and people didn't realize that it wasn't just politics. There was actually a system set out by statutes and ultimately the Constitution about how you resolve disputed elections. And yeah, so I went there and I went down to Florida. I asked, if, I answered a few questions. And then after that, I was like on PBS NewsHour almost every night until the election was resolved by the Supreme Court. Was resolved pretty fast, as I remember. So, if I have my dates right, I believe the Florida Supreme Court ruled on something like December the. Oh, this Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris she ruled on I think November twenty sixth of that year. The election was I think the seventh of November. Um, Harris certifies the vote. It's then challenged by Gore. The Florida Supreme Court I think John rules on something like December the eighth. And then it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, and on the twelfth they issue their verdict on the thirteenth. Gore, Gore concedes. But here's the question, but you know, this, that wasn't That was pretty close to the deadline because it right. had to be done by December 14th. It's <laughs> like exactly. Because under, under the Constitution, the, yeah. the Electoral College has to meet on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. So they were right on top of the deadline. But yeah. here's the question in 2020, John. How does all this happen when we're still counting votes? Yeah, no, that, that, I, I agree with you, Bill. If Florida 2000 uh, was bad. I mean, that was just a preview of what could happen in 2020 because it could happen in multiple states. So uh, the thing that Florida 2000 raised was what would happen if a state just doesn't get its electoral votes in on time? You know, right. What if it doesn't come in on December 14th? So suppose you have uh, and it doesn't have to be what happened in Florida itself. Remember, Florida was because of strange ballots and uh, miscounts and different standards used by different counties. But suppose it's all these things we're seeing here, COVID. Suppose right. COVID prevents people from getting but Suppose civil unrest in cities. Suppose mail-in voting produces fraud. You're going to have lawyers all over that. Uh, suppose there's hacking from foreigner, foreign governments. Suppose uh, so, so all those things could happen, which could prevent a state or a series of states from getting their electoral votes in. So uh, what happened in 2000 was that the Supreme Court essentially saved us from that. But it was only one state. There were all votes there. It was just a question how you recount them. Suppose they're just, we don't know the vote totals from state to some, from the battleground states. Or as you point out, Bill, could just be one or two states. 
then we have to then there's a whole process that's get gets triggered which we really haven't used since the election of Andrew Jackson <laughs> and uh and which produced a huge political and legal controversy and may have led to uh you know real change in the American system of government Right. So the process, I understand it, John, is uh, if a candidate does not have 270 electoral votes when the college meets, it goes it goes to Congress and it goes to the new con- goes to the new Congress in January. Correct. Yeah, this is all set out in the in uh, in several because con- actually the interesting thing is the Constitution screwed it up at first. Really? So there have so. been two constitutional amendments to fix this. So originally, the, the original error was that the electors would get together, they'd vote, and whoever was first would be president, and whoever was second would be vice president. And so when you ran as a team, that produced a tie. And so in 1800, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr had the same number of votes. So no one got a majority in 1800. And so uh, it went to the House. Now, the interesting thing is in the House, the House votes not by individual member, but they vote by delegation. So which, it's in the guess, House. Guess which party has more delegations, right? Has more. Right now, the Republicans have, I'm sure the Trump White House knows this. Yes. I can't say how I know this, but I'm sure they're aware that it's 26 to 23, I think, with one tie. That's, Pens- that's <laughs> My Pennsylvania. Home state. So, so this is the first question, if we get this yes. scenario, how, how are the state delegations divided? So again, now we go back to heads exploding. So you're yeah. in the Democratic <laughs> Party, and you have won the popular vote. You cannot get this settled in the Electoral College. You then go to the House of Representatives. And let's say you have majority control of the House, but you do not have majority control of the delegations. You now lose to the minority in this vote. Kaboom. <laughs> <laughs> of the and as you said, Bill, of the new Congress, not the old Congress. So it's right. interesting. In twenty, I think in twenty sixteen, you're more the expert on this. The the Republicans controlled many more delegations, and it was right. only twenty eighteen that made it even this close. Right. I think they had twenty nine back in twenty sixteen. So now it's down to twenty six, twenty three. Uh, now on the Senate side, the Senate handles the vice presidency, John, and that's just a once each senator gets a vote, right? Yes. But what makes that interesting is suppose that the House delegations, because of the 2020 election, turn out to be 25 to 25, right? That would only take uh, one state to change. And then Pennsylvania is just a one, is a tie. So suppose Pennsylvania goes Democrat, and then one other delegation goes Democrat. Mm-hmm. Then you have a tie in the House. And mm-hmm. under the 20th Amendment, this is all in the, this is all in the Constitution, then if the president can't be, so they say, if the Constitution says that there's a president who's ineligible or no majority wins, then the vice presidential winner becomes president. So okay, you have John, President Mike Pence. <laughs> no, but what if there's a 50-50 tie in the Senate, John? And yes. every senator votes according to their party. So as you know, right now it's 50, is it 53-47 still? 53-47, right. <laughs> right. So it's funny. Maybe Mitch McConnell is more right than people understand. <laughs> yeah. Control of the Senate really is going to be important this time. Yeah, but if it's 50-50, this is interesting. Then it diverts off the Constitution because at 50-50, you don't pick a, a vice president either. So both right. positions are vacant. Then under the Constitution, it says... Uh, in the case where the president and the vice president are not picked or are ineligible, then Congress provides who where the secession goes next. And guess where it goes? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Nancy so we Pelosi. Have the, so we have the beginning president. of the Pelosi presidency. <laughs> Once again, kaboom. <laughs> and the, then the interesting thing is, if you have all these theories about oh, people being too old to be president. 
who becomes vice president under Nancy Pelosi. I think then in that case, you go to the um, statute that was used to, that Richard Nixon used to make Gerald Ford vice president. And he nominates someone subject to the consent of the Senate. Right. Uh, remember, the Ford White House had an issue with this because they were looking when Ford became president. Carl Albert would have been the uh, temporary vice president. And Carl Albert was uh, very aged and just clearly not not qualified to be president. So they had to they had to do this as well. So, John, under these various scenarios, now let's assume the Electoral College goes about its business. You're going to have a lot of screaming and protesting coming out of this election. The first one is going to be to abolish the Electoral College. So I cover that, actually, in the first chapter of my book, because a lot of the Democratic nominees for president, uh, competitors for president this year said they wanted to abolish the Electoral College. Um, there's this uh, great, I think that I thought I saw a great video that uh, AOC posted driving through these empty Midwestern states saying, this is the Electoral College, give these guys as many votes as us. <laughs> it's a great, I thought it was quite funny, actually. But there's uh, two ways it could happen. Uh, one, you need a constitutional amendment, which I can't imagine any of the small states voting for. If, the, if we actually switch to a direct vote, no one would ever show up to campaign in any of the small states. Um, but there's another proposal up uh, to change Electoral College, which is really interesting. It's called the National Popular Vote Initiative. Because mm -hmm. under the Constitution, uh, electoral votes are actually awarded by the state legislatures. Right. Uh, and so most state legislatures have just said, well, we're going to toss it open to our voters. But they usually do this weird thing where they give all the electoral votes to the winners in their state. It's a winner-take-all system. It doesn't have to be that way. So many states have signed on to this initiative where they say, uh, we don't care how the voters in our state vote. We're going to give all the, our electoral votes to whoever wins the majority vote in the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, right. Now, they have a little agreement that says this will not take effect until uh, enough states to create a majority. The 270 electoral votes you mentioned have signed on. Right. Uh, the problem, that's cl very clever. The problem is that the Constitution forbids uh, what it calls compacts between states unless they're approved by Congress. Mm -hmm. So, I guess if you're a Democrat, you really would get rid of the Electoral College. You could get the National Popular Vote Initiative approved by enough states to be a majority of the college. And if you control Congress and the presidency, you would approve it. Interesting. Interesting. Speaking of the Electoral College, John, that's made up of electors. Um, a phrase came up in 2016 called, the uh, phrase was faithless elector. And what this is, is uh, John Ewer, Bill Whalen represents Texas or California Electoral College. And the expectation is that we will vote for whichever candidate carried the statewide vote. But you or Whalen sit down and they vote for somebody else. For example, two electors in Texas. I think one voted for Ron, Rand Paul and the other one voted for John Kasich, I believe. Five electors defected from Hillary Clinton in 2016. John, what happens in a scenario, and then we're going back to our kaboom scenarios here, but what happens <laughs> in a scenario, John, where it's, let's say, a 270 to 268 tally or a 269 all tally, and one elector decides to defect. Let's say that elector... You know, somebody shows up my torch up the big bag of money and says, here, go go vote for the other guy. And I swing the election. What mm. are the legal ramifications of that? That's a great question, Bill. And it was handled by the Supreme Court this last year in what was called the faithless elector case. And mm -hmm. as you said, there were several electors from 2016. And there have been some such cases before uh, who pledged to vote, right? We vote, we don't see the, their names when we vote for president, but in actuality what happens, we vote for a candidate and then these particular electors are picked. They pledge to vote for the candidate. 
but suppose they don't. So uh, some states punish them, you know, with a fine. I guess it could even be jail time. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld those state laws and said states are allowed to punish electors who, you know, don't live up to their promises. But what I didn't see in the opinion was a permission given to the states to force the electoral votes to be changed from what right. that elector actually did. So suppose you're, yeah, suppose it's 269, 269. As you say, Bill, any single elector could change their vote and swing the election to who they prefer, whom they prefer. And yeah, they could be thrown in jail. They could pay large fines, but I don't think that negates their electoral vote. They might just say, I'll take it. I'll take the punishment in order to give the election to Trump or to Biden. So I am on the losing side of that scenario and I lose my elector. He or she switches over to the other side and lose the election. What are my legal possibilities? Here? What, what do I do? Do I go to federal court right away and file a lawsuit? What, well, what the, the politically smart thing would be to try to convince someone on the other side to switch their vote. <laughs> right. Right? Um, but I, I think you're kind of out of luck because the, uh, the it is, as you said, Bill, those people are appointed as electors, and constitutionally, they get to vote as they see fit. Now, states can punish them for not keeping their word, but I don't think the Constitution discusses changing anyone's vote. It, right. In fact, it's quite silent. So I think, I think you're you're out of luck if people. It's actually interesting. Over time, people don't change their votes more often, but we haven't had a series of elections as close as we've had since 2000 either. You know who comes to mind, John, is Bartman. Remember Steve Bartman, the guy who uh, caught the caught the foul yeah. ball in the Cubs game and maybe yeah. cost him going to the World Series? Yeah, it was in Chicago then. What happened to him? Yeah. He had to go into hiding forever. Was <laughs> <laughs> he still in hiding? <laughs> Wait, what? But if it was the Cubs he stopped, why didn't he just move to Southside where the White Sox fans are? It was, but, imagine, John, but imagine, John, you're the elector who hands the election to Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, you, you're going to have to yeah. leave the country. <laughs> Or, or you can, you're going to get a fancy appointment as ambassador to France or England. <laughs> exactly. Okay, John, so you've walked us through how to change the uh, Electoral College. Uh, what yeah. about adding more justices to the Supreme Court? Another, another popular democratic concept in 2020. Yeah, it's interesting. I go through this in the book, too. This is also another uh, interesting example of, uh, I think, people who are so upset by Trump that they're willing to change constitutional norms. It's not... Uh, it's not possible to say it's unconstitutional. The Constitution does give Congress the right to create the federal courts and decide how big they are. Mm -hmm. And we have had, you know, we started out with uh, five and then seven. And so the number of justices has changed over time. But it has settled at nine since just after the Civil War because we decided as a country that we shouldn't make the courts a political plaything where we'll just change the numbers until we get the results we like. You know, it's not like just spinning a roulette wheel over and over and over again until we get the, you know, the double zero we're hoping for. Right. And I think with the Democrats, when they propose changing, the, they can change uh, the number of justices on the Supreme Court. But then what's the stopping point? Every time a party controls a president in both houses, we're just going to keep adding or even subtracting justices until uh, they agree, until the courts agree with us, and then the courts are going to just become another political actor and not a you know independent constitutional tribunal. Mm -hmm. What about term limits for the court? Yeah, that's a harder question. I, I have a really mixed view about that. Um, until 
I think Brennan and Marshall really, and Douglas, uh, justices didn't serve as long as they did. Now they're, it's not unusual for them to serve into their 80s. But until, you know, before the 1980s, I think justices would only generally retire. I think I looked this after around the age of 75, after 20 years on average at the court. Uh, and so you don't want to, you know, there's this idea. I think this problem with justices serving too long. On the other hand, life expectancy is getting longer. <laughs> you know, people are living longer than they used to. But I, I think it would be healthy for there to be term limits on the court. But I'm not really sure about it. I don't think you could do it without a constitutional amendment. So I think that the likelihood of it is extremely low. Mm-hmm. If you did over the Supreme Court, John, would you also have to do it for district and appellate court justices as well? No, you, will, you wouldn't have to. And in fact, there's a, there's a clever proposal I've seen that's really never gotten a lot of traction, which says, you know, the Supreme Court only has to be the chief justice. So some people said, why don't you just take lower court judges from all around the country and just rotate them onto the Supreme Court for a year and then rotate them off? Uh, that would do a lot to, I think, cure this inside the beltway fever that some justices get thinking that they're philosopher kings who have to solve all the nation's uh, problems. Uh, you could easily have all kinds of other configurations than having you know, associate Supreme Court justices only of a limited term. Exactly. So, John, one thing I noticed missing was when Barack Obama stepped down in 2016. I didn't hear much talk about the 22nd Amendment. Does that the one that limits him to two terms? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The, there's, this, there's this debate about whether the two-term limit is two consecutive terms or just two terms overall. And that happened with Bill Clinton, too, when Bill Clinton stepped down in 2000. I right. remember some people said, well, let's maybe Clinton could go back in 2004. <laughs> they just got they got the last name right. They just didn't get the first name right. But exactly. yeah, if you look at the text of the 22nd Amendment, it does not say consecutive terms. It just says two terms. So I've always thought that meant it's two overall terms, not just two terms in a row. Um, and it was passed in response to FDR, who won four terms in a row. It wasn't really, I, 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 I tend to think, and I, it's, it gets hard for, it's actually interesting if this came up, by the way, Bill, it would mm-hmm. take us back to your kaboom scenarios. Yes. Because the people who decide whether someone is ineligible to be president mm-hmm. is, as you were just saying, the House, when it decides the electoral votes. Well, this gets back to Trump and what drives his critics crazy about him, where he suggested a couple of days ago that, well, maybe I won't step down. Maybe I won't leave office after two terms. And so immediately, my God, does a man not know the Constitution? Does he not care about the Constitution? And off we go into, you know, that day's craziness with Trump. Why, why do you think Trump says things like that? Does he just like to get in people's heads or, or, or does, he actually, does he actually have great? Do you think he actually has a vision of staying beyond eight years? So, you know, there are these people who think he's uh, just such an artful tactician and strategist that all of this is on purpose. But, uh, yeah, my sense of it, just from meeting him, was that he's like, uh, sometimes he's like the guy at the end of the bar. And he hears people talking about something. He just can't help but comment. And he just loves commenting about everything. And I think he's just spontaneously reacting, throwing out sometimes crazy thoughts just because it's fun. <laughs> That's what he used to do before he was president. And so far he's been doing it and it seems to help him stay, right, dominate the political discussion. I bet he can't believe that people care about every single thing he says and tweets. Right? I think before he was president, when you're you know, a reality TV show host, you fight to get any mention in the press. <laughs> and now I think he's like a kid in a candy store. 
Yeah. You know, one idea which I haven't heard much of this year, John, but California has been debating it is uh, lowering the voting age. It's actually an initiative on the ballot, which would allow 17 year olds in California to vote if they turn 18 by the time of the next election. So they're going to put more, more, more voters in the game if they can. Uh, what would do you think there's any juice to do something nationally about lowering the voting age to 17 or even 16? Again, you'd have to go through the Constitution, right? Gosh, I st- I still think we should raise the voting age, don't you? <laughs> the eighteen-year-olds shown they can be trusted with we're, we're, political we're now, responsibility, but <laughs> we're now we're now showing our age. But yes, <laughs> no, no. I I think when I was eighteen, I didn't think I should be voting either. Don't get me wrong, but I, right. uh, it's interesting. So states can right, the states can set the voting ages they want. So that's interesting. I didn't realize California we're we're going to let sixteen and seventeen-year-olds maybe start voting in state elections. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, 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 it's interesting because uh, that age of 18, there, so you could say, what's the difference, right? Between some people who are 19 are immature, some people are 17 and mature. Right. You know, why have this uh, cutoff? Uh, you know, but it but does apply to lots of other areas, like whether you're subject to the death penalty, <laughs> whether you can be tried for as an adult for murder, whether right. you serve in the military. So in some areas, our legal system, you know, has to have clear, bright line rules instead of, you know, examining everybody uh, one by one to see if they're fit to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, we've decided never to do that again, of course, for good reason. And so, I, you know, 18 seems to be the age we pick for lots of t- lots of areas for people to be considered uh, independent adults. I can't right. think it'd be a good idea to go below it. No, but if you're the Democratic Party, John, and you're the business of winning elections, you, number one, want to get rid of the Electoral College because popular vote works for you. The electoral vote does not. And number two, you'd love to lower the voting age because young people like us, they don't like Republicans. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be, I mean, that would be, uh, that would be interesting if they tried to do that. But again, you'd have to get three quarters of the states to approve. Right. And I think... I, I just don't see that. I, I would guess, and maybe I was wrong about this, but I, I, I'm curious what you think, Bill, about how often states actually vote together out of their interest as states. You know, so, but we always assume small states will defend federalism because right. that's the only reason anyone cares about them. You know, small states aren't going to vote to, I think, amend the Electoral College or to get rid of the allocation of senators, which is actually barred by the Constitution. You would no. think if you were a small state, you don't have a lot of cities you don't have a big population of 17-year-olds or 16-year-olds, you're going to stop that kind of constitutional amendment. Well, you are. And also, you may not you may not read the Founding Fathers that closely. You may not you know, remember Madison and tyranny of the majority. But if you do understand how the system works, let's say you're Nevada or Wyoming, let's say, which has a population of, what, 600,000 people or something like that, you relish the fact that if you are choosing the President of the United States in that House delegation scenario, you get one vote and California gets one vote. <laughs> <laughs> you love to cancel out California in that case. So why why would you give up that authority? Yeah, yeah I agree. But I, the thing I wonder about is whether they vote together, like whether the, the small states all have that interest. But now I'm wondering whether would Delaware and Wyoming vote together to stop things because of their, or do they split apart for partisan reasons now? Because that's so much stronger. I think John, it would look very much like the national popular vote initiative, which if you look at the, if you look at the chain of states that are in it right now, what do they have in common? They're blue states, or either seriously yeah. deep blue states, or pretty much reliably blue states. I don't know if there's a red state in the bunch right now. So mm-hmm. I imagine that movement's going to crap out at like 200. And what did Hillary get? 232 electoral votes. Let's yeah. assume that it craps out right about that number. They're close. Not get, 
they're getting close, but it just it would take a lot to flip. And this is why, you know, elections are important in states like Arizona. If you do flip in Arizona, maybe you bring them into the compact as well. You know, the other thing about states is and why I think some what somewhat hypocritical is if suppose you were these states that did believe in it. Well, then the very least you would do is stop elect, allocating all your electoral votes to the winner take all. And you would make you would start divvying up the electoral votes based on the percentage of people voted in your home state. At least that would be closer to democracy. But the winner-take-all system is specifically designed to recognize states as unit and incur- units and encourage candidates to go state by state in assembling coalitions. All right. Speaking of lawyers, John, I want to uh, read you a quote from a, uh, a lawyer who went to Yale Law School as in Ben Uh-oh. Stein's law class. <laughs> Her name is Hillary Clinton. And here's what she said the other day on Showtime's The Circus. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote. Hang with me, John. She said, quote, in the recent Michigan primary, I was told in Detroit, the Republicans had 40 lawyers challenging absentee mail and voting. And a local reporter talking to one of the lawyers he knew was told this is really firsthand stuff she has here. <laughs> talking talking to one of the lawyers he knew was told Triple it was hearsay. Triple told it was a was told it was a dry run for November. So we've got to have a massive legal operation. I know the Biden campaign is working on that. John, what is a massive legal operation? <laughs> I don't know what Hillary means by it, but it might be referring to her defense team and her husband's defense team well, well, during well, the investigation. But well, what, there's what a, there's they a lawyer, do. Yeah. There's a lawyer in Dallas, for example, John, who is uh, he's a Democrat. He said he will recruit a thousand lawyers if need be to go out and just snoop anywhere and everywhere there's a vote. So, again, talk about lawyering up. How do you lawyer yeah. up? That. So this actually, so this actually kind of happened in Florida, two thousand, and mm-hmm. happened actually both sides have did it for every election thereafter because they're not sure what's going to happen on November fourth, and so that means having. And you saw just a little piece of it in Florida, two thousand. You remember, you may remember John Bolton <laughs> looking at Chad's, you know, arguing with a Democrat, a lawyer on the other side about each vote, and so you could see if you were going to, if you were worried about the. Right, the integrity of the vote, recount procedures, uh, monkeying around, vote harvesting, all that stuff. Then what you do is you would get teams of lawyers for each state. I assume, I, I'm sure both candidates have already done this. You have teams of lawyers for each state. They're going to, because um, all of our elections are done at the county level, right? Every No state actually runs the election itself. They push it down to the county level. So mm-hmm. you'll have lawyers at each county uh, to observe how the votes are collected, especially the mail-in votes, you would you would want to know: Did one person bring in a ballot, or did some guy come in with a bag of a hundred ballots? Uh, right. You'd want to make sure you could challenge whether the signatures are accurate, and then you could say: Are they? Are how are you counting the votes? How are you verifying that people actually cast a vote? And then, if there's a recount bill, mm-hmm. then you would. That's when you saw Florida 2000. Then you would start getting lawyers in to actually say, "I want to look at the ballots and see what's." standard you're applying. And there, the Supreme Court actually opened up a Pandora's box, potentially, because it said a state commits a constitutional violation if it does not use the same standard for counting a vote throughout the state. So if different counties are applying different ways of saying this was a this is a this is how we check signatures for example mm-hmm. or this is how right. we look at a hanging chad then you could go to federal court right away and try to stop that state from handing in its electoral votes. Right. So, John, I just see confusion on all levels. I see, first of all, legal challenges based on what final counts are. I see legal challenges based on votes that were counted. I see legal challenges based on votes that were not counted. How 
how can you keep all this going while at the same time you're still counting about because how can you stay on this deadline to try to get something certified yeah. by mid-December to actually you know launch the electoral college so i think as you know bill the thing that has saved us in the past is that our elections were never that close so all this only matters when you get something like below 2% of the uh, 2% of the electorate makes a difference in a state and you go to recounts. But you're, I think you're completely right. If, if it's a close election, which it sounds like it will be, and if you have several states which could make the difference themselves are close and you get into the below 2% range and you need to have recounts and so on, you could see a situation where several of these states don't get the recount done on time. And so you can't actually, you don't actually, no one will get a majority of the Electoral College. So I actually think your kaboob scenarios are a lot closer than people think. And you could say both sides by lawyering up and getting into the business of challenging votes uh, are going to make that even more, more likely, not less. Right. Uh, I guess what I'm looking for here, John, is the, the Nixon standard, if you will. Richard Nixon in 1960 very famously could have challenged Illinois' results. There was some mischief going on, especially in Cook County. Things were not not looking proper, and he could have he could have challenged it. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. Why? For the good of the nation. We're not going to put the country through it. So he took a pass on it. But do you think in 2020, anybody anybody is going to be so noble in the defense of the republic? <laughs> so let me, let me just start out by saying, would it have been better for the country if Nixon had challenged those elections instead of harboring eight years of resentment and hate against the Kennedys and then went hog wild when he became president? Right? If he had actually gone ahead and challenged the 1960 elections, maybe he would have won, maybe he would have lost, but he would have known for sure. And he might not have done some of the disastrous things he did. But I think uh, as we start out with Florida 2000 shows why you shouldn't give up. Right? The Florida 2000 says, you know, the, well, well, I was, yes, you could say I concede because I lost the popular vote. <clears throat> but I would say the Constitution, uh, this is the message of my book in the end, is the Constitution is not a democratic document. It specifically rejects the idea of having a single national election for president. If you win under the rules, you should become president under the rules. And so why would you give up, give that up <laughs> as Nixon did? Okay. So somewhere in Washington, D.C., wherever he is right now, a gentleman named Ben Ginsburg is stretching his arms. <laughs> He's stretching his legs. He is, he is like a bullpen pitcher getting ready to toss. Ben Ginsburg is a Republican elections lawyer. Yes. And he was in the Florida 2000 recount. And anytime there's a ballot controversy, you go to Ben, right? <laughs> That's right. He, there are very few people who are masters of the electoral process, but he is definitely one of them. <laughs> but on the Democratic side, John, the lead dog in 2000 was one David Boyce, correct? Yes, David Boyce. And then actually the guy along with Ben who uh, was on the Repub on George Bush's side was Ted Olson. So right. That's actually, I think, how Boyce and Olson ran into each other for the first time. Is Ted Olson, is he, is he a never-Trumper now? I don't know if he's a never Trumper, but he has represented. Uh, he was he's in the same sex marriage case, yeah, right? Same sex marriage, and then actually, you know, this recent DACA case that uh, Trump mm -hmm. lost. Right. Ted Olson actually represented the University of California, so he, he won that one. But I don't necessarily think Ted is a anti-Trumper, a never Trumper. And the Democratic side was led by one David Boyce, who yes. went on to represent uh, Harvey Weinstein and yes. Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. I'm not sure, John, that is the face of woke social justice that you want from the Democratic <laughs> Party. Well, if you wanted woke social justice, we could uh, send uh, Kamala Harris herself down to count some votes. Gavin Newsom could get in on it. I'm sure you got an army of uh, California office holders who would love to visit places like uh, Florida again, Michigan, Wisconsin to count ballots. 
So how confident are you, John, that we can actually pull off this election in a way that the public will actually feel confident about the results? I mean, we live in an information age yes. in which people are going to forever raise questions about, you know, places not being open, people being turned away, you know, blah, blah, blah. But do you think we can actually do this cleanly in 2020? Yeah. You, what do you think, Bill? It really depends on how decisive, the, you know, we could pray for a decisive outcome where uh, in the Electoral College, the say Trump wins by 300 votes again, the states that give him those 300 votes, the vote tally is clear. Then we're not going to get any questions. But you know, if we get to the system where we have to go to the 12th Amendment and the 20th Amendment and we go to the House and we go to the Senate, I think those are all legitimate in the sense that that's what the Constitution that was ratified and adopted sets out. Uh, but right. the, that president will live for four years with accusations of being uh, undemocratic. I'll give you the historical analog was uh, John Quincy Adams. Right? John Quincy right. Adams uh, ran against Andrew Jackson. Neither won the majority, went to the House. And allegedly, Henry Clay's won the election for Adams. He, he made uh, Clay a secretary of state, right? Yeah. And so yeah. Jackson, for four years, accused, uh, called it the corrupt bargain. He spent four years campaigning against him. And uh, Adams lost re-election. Adams' administration was crippled. And what happened is it introduced this right, this great expansion of democracy with the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Ironically, Andrew Jackson's portrait is the one hanging in the Oval Office. He's probably the president that comes that Donald Trump has the most sympathetical with. Okay, so you just paved a scenario, John, where a Democratic-controlled House actually makes Donald Trump the president, a, a Republican Senate makes Mike Pence the vice president, and a bitter 81-year-old Joe Biden rides back in 2024 and, like Andrew Jackson, <laughs> 1828, finishes what he started out to do four years earlier. <laughs> That's right. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, we hasn't happened in, <laughs> since 190 years, but we might as well see if the machinery still works okay. Okay, final question, John. Yeah. Um, it's not constitutional, uh, I think, in the purest sense, but if there was a Democratic Senate in 2021, you could probably get pretty good odds that Chuck Schumer is going to lay waste to the filibuster. Hmm. Uh, yeah. just, as, just as Harry Reid uh, changed the rules on appointing judges, which Mitch McConnell yeah. now delights in. Uh, yeah. Are we in an yeah. era, John, where just members of Congress are just more than happy to toss away these institutions of the office? Hey, and you know, again, the, the, the filibuster is a very venerable thing. The the uh, the judge things was a very venerable practice, but they just they just chucked yeah. them for immediate benefits. Yeah, again, this is uh, the I argue in the book that uh, this is another example of getting rid of the filibuster of uh, the outrage against Trump and the Republicans that many Democrats feel to the extent that I think they're willing to tear down institutions without asking what's going to come along to replace it. And I think, you've, Billy, it's a good question. The filibuster, like the size of the Supreme Court, uh, is uh, is easily changed. It's up to a simple majority, 51 senators in the Senate, to decide whether to have the filibuster or not. But it's a rule we've had since at least the 1820s, if not before, and it's designed to slow down the rush uh, to pass legislation. And I think one of the Constitution's benefits that they that our, our friends on the other side of the aisle should observe is that, uh, you know, the, the Constitution succeeds in America, maybe succeeds because we don't rush to judgment and we do take things slower and more deliberately than our uh, you know, our, our peer countries in Europe and Asia who have made an utter mess of things by becoming pure democracies. And so the, they could get rid of the filibuster, but I think it would be it would be another example of uh, Trump derangement syndrome, putting the short term ahead of their long term interests. 
Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay. Anything else I'm missing on the constitutional front or we pretty much covered it today? <laughs> I just, just, just in terms of the electoral call. Yes. I think there are very few people except probably lawyers working for <laughs> Trump and Biden who have worked out all the details of the 12th and 20th amendments the way you have. Well, I mean, you have a challenge here with a low information electorate, which uh, first of all, doesn't, first of all, thinks that we're a democracy in, the, in terms of the rules. They don't understand the nuance between democracy and republic. They don't understand how the electoral college works necessarily. They probably have never heard of the phrase faithless elector. They certainly have no idea, John, about the process. They just think, oh, okay, the Democrats control the House and they'll pick Biden. Oops, surprise. <laughs> so again, you could, you, the public could just be in for a series out of a lot of big surprises in December and January if this plays out the way it could. Oh, yeah, I think, uh, and that would raise this question you were asking earlier, will it, uh, even though, say, Trump or Biden becomes president through the Constitution's rules, they suffer four years of illegitimacy. And some people think that happened in the first Bush term. Remember from 2000 to, 2001 to 04, uh, right. there were constant questions about George W. Bush's legitimacy, even though it turned out when the newspapers went to, and looked at the, all the ballots that Bush had actually won. Um, but it really, I think, took his re-election in 2004 uh, to you know, really solidify uh, his legitimacy as president. So I think that could happen uh, again. Right. It could mean that nobody should want to be the president for uh, the next four years because right. it'll but just be a terrible job. Right. But Bush increased his uh, electoral count from, I think, 271 to 286, if I'm not mistaken, and he yeah. won the popular vote in 2004. So Trump will be challenged, number one, to, if he wins, to increase his electoral vote, and number two, not to increase the margin by which he lost the popular vote. So if he does win, if he does prevail in the system we have, yeah, there will be a cloud over him, no question about that. But, you know, that's Donald Trump. That's business as usual for Donald Trump, I think. (laughs) He likes to be in a good fight rather than, it would be strange to think if he had it easy what he might do. Okay. Well, John, you don't go too far in December. You might be on call for a lot of networks to try to explain the nuances <laughs> of the Constitution and election law. So <laughs> you maybe, me, maybe, you. Maybe, maybe you should be stretching and working out in the bullpen. <laughs> you, you and me both, Bill. Now you have the whole secret, too. <laughs> okay. Hey, John, thanks for doing the podcast. You guys just hit a Pacific Century the other day, right? Yeah, we've, uh, we've had some good episodes. We actually interviewed uh, the defense minister of Japan, who may well become the next prime minister. We just had him on last week. It's amazing. Okay. Fortuitous timing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, John, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Bill. It's been great. Okay, you take care, my friend. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work for Hoover's fellows, including John Yu, to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. John Yu, are you on Twitter? Never, <laughs> ever am I going on Twitter. There are a lot of guys named John Yu on Twitter, by the way. but uh... <laughs> And I'm sure half of them are actually saying things I've said. <laughs> Okay, so you can't find John Yu on social media, but you can certainly tune into him on Hoover's Pacific Century podcast. And the book I mentioned, Defender-in-Chief Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, it is available on Amazon. Correct, John? Yes, I hope so. I haven't been censored off of any of the social media platforms or Amazon yet. (laughs) Okay, very good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.